As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome into the mailbag edition of the Athletic Baseball Show. I'm Tim McMaster, as always, joined by Ken Rosenthal. Spring training, two weeks away, and that's supposed to get us to forget about all the snow that's outside. But if you live in New York City, like Ken and I, there's no snow. In fact, we're setting an official record today, Ken. It's the longest New York City has ever gone into a winter season without the first measurable snow. It's crazy. Hopefully we get a little bit for the sake of my one-year-old who would like to go play in it. But but uh, before we, with that little note, before we get into the mailbag, uh, I know that you had some things you wanted to talk about to kick off the episode today. Tim, I do. And I must say, in response to what you just talked about, there is nothing in this world like a snow day. It's the greatest thing ever. And it's a shame that children in the New York metropolitan area have not experienced one yet this year hopefully they're coming all right now for what i wanted to talk about it is a little different than the usual fare occasionally tim people will ask me my favorite part about the job and it's not breaking news it's not writing a great story being on television not covering big events it's not even being in the company of all these amazing players now i get to do all that and Believe me, it's a privilege, and I'm aware of it every day. Very grateful. But honestly, my favorite part of the job is the people. The players, yeah, for sure. But also the coaches, the managers, agents, executives, owners, you name it. People from all backgrounds and races, all walks of life. And of course, many, if not most of my favorites, are the people in my own business, on the media side. So I'm going to talk about two of those people today. Sarah Langs is one. The late Pedro Gomez is another. Both were honored over the weekend. Sarah, a researcher for ESPN and MLB.com, she received the You Can Look It Up Award at the Baseball Writers Dinner in New York on Saturday night. Pedro was honored that same night at an event called Pedro Palooza, something that benefits the Pedro Gomez Foundation in Phoenix. 
Now, normally I go to the BBWAA event and it's an event in which industry people gather. All the award winners from the previous season are honored. I live, as you just said, Tim, in the New York area. I look forward to that dinner every year. And this year it was held for the first time since 2020. That was the year that COVID started a month after the dinner about that. And unfortunately, because the two events coincided with each other, I had to make a choice. And I decided to attend the Pedro Gomez Foundation event. Instead, even though I had to fly to Phoenix, I was friends with Pedro. and We sort of came up at the same time, sort of shared similar beliefs about the way to do the job. I missed the inaugural event last year, didn't want to miss it again. Of course, this meant that I wound up missing Sarah, who, as many of you know, revealed that she was diagnosed with ALS at the age of 29 and revealed that in October. I missed Buster Olney's moving introduction of Sarah. I missed the standing ovations that she received. I missed her speech. Her good friend Mandy Bell, the Guardian's beat writer for MLB.com, held the microphone for Sarah, who in classic Sarah form thanked one person after another. I watched the speech online on MLB.com afterward, and her message remained the same as it has been since she revealed her diagnosis. She talked about kindness, the importance of being kind, not just to people in her condition, but to people at all times. It's actually quite a relevant message for all of us at any moment. Now, Sarah, if you haven't figured it out by now, following her on Twitter, marveling at her research, reveling in her trademark, saying baseball is the best, is a special person. Zach Buchanan wrote all about her for The Athletic recently. It was one of our best-read stories in the past several months. Now, I don't know Sarah nearly as well as I knew Pedro. But one day, a few years back at MLB Network, we were on the same show together. She was typical Sarah, delivering great information in her totally cheerful way. And afterward, I gave her the greatest compliment I could think of. I told her that her enthusiasm, her love of the game, reminded me of Peter Gammons. Now, Peter is the godfather of our industry, the reason so many of us even exist. His love of the game drives him even now that he is older just as it drives Sarah, even though she, of course, has this terrible illness. And in both cases, just being around them, seeing them, talking to them, it's nothing short of inspiring. Now, for me at least, and for many others, Pedro remains quite inspiring too. He was a great, and I mean great, journalist. He wrote what many of us consider to be the gutsiest baseball column ever written. He criticized Kurt Schilling in the Arizona Republic, the Diamondbacks' hometown paper, the morning of Game 7 of the 2000 World Series when Schilling was about to start, when the Diamondbacks were about to win, or play for at that moment, the only championship in their franchise's history. Now, Pedro covered Barry Bonds for ESPN for many years as well, asking tough questions, never backing down. But beyond that, he had... A rare spirit, a spirit that in some ways was not unlike Sarah's. Pedro loved people. He was a connector. He never forgot who he was and what he achieved. But he also never forgot how lucky he was to do his job. His foundation, started by his wife Sandy, benefits four organizations. 
the Cronkite School of Journalism at Arizona State. That's the school, by the way, that produced our Fabian Argia and Katie Wu, two of our best young beat writers. Fabian with the Dodgers, Katie with the Cardinals. The National Association of Hispanic Journalists, UMSCARE, which is the umpire's charity, and the University of Arizona Baseball Program, which is where Pedro Sonrio pitched for a few years, a few years back. The event Saturday night was a fun event, just as Pedro would have wanted it. Two bands played, including one fronted by Vanessa Hutchins, the girlfriend of Rockies infielder Cole Tucker. She's quite a singer, as well as an actress. Pedro's friends gathered, and we all told our favorite Pedro stories, including the column about Schilling. We were regaling about that one. The scholarship winners from Arizona State were introduced, and Sandy spoke. She spoke about how her and her three children, Rio, who I mentioned, their son Dante, and their daughter Sierra, have persevered in the two years since Pedro passed away of a heart attack at age 58. And Sandy based her speech on two concepts, gratitude, big concept for Sarah as well, and purpose. Gratitude and purpose. She kept repeating those phrases, emphasizing the importance of both. It was a beautiful speech. And rest assured, Pedro's legacy lives on in many ways. His son, Rio, who I mentioned, he's a pitcher in the Red Sox organization. And he's going to be part of Team Columbia in the World Baseball Classic. Pedro's family was from Cuba. Sandy's was from Colombia. Now, Pedro would have been totally excited by this. He would call me every so often, just talking about Rio's progress, first at Arizona, then with the Red Sox. So thrilled that his son was pitching first in college and then professionally. Now, I'll be covering the WBC for Fox. Columbia is in the U.S. bracket in Phoenix. So there is a chance we will do that game. I'm not sure yet exactly what our schedule is. And I told Sandy that my fondest hope is that Rio pitches in that game and I get to interview her in the stands. Pedro would be all about that. And Pedro would be all about it because he knew, just as Sarah knows and just as many of us understand, that this thing is about people. It's always about people. All right, Tim, let's get to the mailbag. Hey, this is Ken. I'm not available right now. Please leave a voicemail. Okay, if you want to get involved next time on the mailbag, you can call us at 646-543-7072 or the email address, tabaseballshow at gmail.com. And Kim, we're going to start with Brian, who says, I would love to hear your thoughts regarding the Dodgers' current offseason strategy. Before the Rojas trade, it seemed like the Dodgers were seeking a reset of the tax base, but now they have traded for Miguel Rojas and pushed themselves to being more than $5 million over that threshold. Do you expect the Dodgers to make a trade for the purpose of getting below the threshold, or do you think it's more likely that the Dodgers make a trade that pushes them even further beyond in order to add to the current roster? I would say the latter. It seems to me that now that they're over, that they're going to keep going. Barring some kind of disastrous first half, after which they would decide, eh, we're going to trade off some players, get under, might as well. I don't see that happening to the Dodgers. They are still one of the best teams in baseball, even though they have had a quiet offseason, relatively quiet. Now, 
part of this stems from the uncertainty over Trevor Bauer when they were waiting for Major League Baseball. Actually, when they were waiting for the arbitrator to make his decision about Major League Baseball's suspension. The arbitrator knocked that suspension down from 324 games to 194 and docked his salary for the first 50 games of this season. So while the Dodgers were awaiting that decision, which came in December, they didn't know how much they would be paying Trevor Bauer this year, whether they would be paying him all of his salary or, as it turned out, part of his salary. And that put them in an uncertain spot. There were a wide range of outcomes, some extremes in there, right? So, as I said, he gets docked 50 games for this season of pay. That amounts to 55 days of salary. You do the math, the luxury tax hit turns out to be about 23 and I can explain why it's based the luxury tax, as you guys know, on average annual value. His AAV was $34 million. You take away the 55 days, it goes down to about 23 and a half, 24. Now, as for where they are, Rojas did put them over. They might still add an outfielder, though it might be a low-cost outfielder. It would still be another salary. And as we discussed at the deadline, they could go even further. And that's what I would expect they would do, right? They've done that in the past. They've been a big player at the deadline. Darvish, Manny Machado, others. So, while it looked like for a time they were going to reset, it does not now appear to be the case. So, what I see them doing is continuing their plan to mix in some of their younger players. The Miguel Vargases, the Ryan Pepios, Bobby Millers. There are a number of them. And they're going to do that and see where this all leads. Now, again, at the deadline, they can deconstruct. I just don't see it happening. They're going to be good. But what they could do next year, if enough of these young players produce and look like keepers, they potentially could reset then, though it's going to be difficult, I would imagine, if they re-sign Julio Urias, who is eligible for free agency. Now, they have some other guys eligible for free agency, too, that will come off the payroll, potentially. Kershaw would be one. J.D. Martinez and some others, but I still see them probably being over because even if they lose Arias, they're going to have to replace him. They're going to have to figure some things out. So while a reset is always desirable for these big money teams, gets them to a point where they don't have to pay as much in penalties, the Dodgers are the Dodgers. They're not going to stop competing, and I expect them to be over when the season ends, that's when this thing is calculated. When the season ends. It doesn't matter where a team is right now. It doesn't matter where a team is at the deadline. It matters after the year where their payroll ended up. And for next year, there's a certain pitcher slash hitter who may be available that could add to the problem for them. That's a great point, Tim, but I forgot <laughs> him and he could add to the problem. That's the guy the Dodgers want. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Next question comes from voicemail. Hi, this is Sarah in New Jersey. Thanks for the great show and all the great baseball coverage. In light of the crazy offseason, I wanted to know what factors besides money make a team a desirable landing spot for free agents. Are there teams that are known to be places that many free agents hope to or hope not to end up at? Thanks, and I look forward to more excellent baseball coverage and hopefully an exciting season for all of us. 
Sarah, there actually are several reasons why... Eh. Sarah, there actually are several factors, many factors, that players consider besides money when deciding where to go in free agency. Now, let's face it. Money is always going to be the principal driver, but I'll go through some of the other reasons as well. Geography is one. A player might want to go to a certain place, a certain city. Some guys are enamored of playing for the Yankees, let's face it. Some players think San Diego is pretty cool. Some players might prefer other cities as well. Also, the idea of going home enters into the equation. Whether as an appeal or not, some players might want to play close to home or at home. Some players might prefer to play elsewhere for whatever reason. Maybe they don't want to be bugged for tickets all the time. Now, in recent years, we've seen a couple of deals as well. I think of the Phillies in particular, where geography played a factor in part because their wives were from New Jersey. Zach Wheeler, wife was from New Jersey, turned down more money from the White Sox. Trey Turner, wife was from New Jersey, turned down more money from the Padres. These things definitely happen. Another factor, state taxes. Florida and Texas are the two states with major league teams that do not have state income tax. Washington doesn't either, but it does for high earners. I'm not going to get into an accounting discussion here. If Nashville ever gets a team, Tennessee will be another state with a major league club that has no state income tax, and that could be appealing to players as well. In fact, a lot of players live in Nashville as it is. So that's another possible reason. And then there are connections, connections to a manager, a coach, maybe a front office person. And I think back to the Phillies again, Kyle Schwarber, when he signed with Philadelphia, one of the appeals to him was the presence of hitting instructor Kevin Long, who he had worked with in Washington with great success. So all of those things come into it. But at the end of the day, money is still the biggest reason why players choose their free agent destinations. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right, this question connects directly to that one. It's from Richie, who sends us a lot of questions. They're usually really long and in-depth. And this one stood out to me, Ken. I thought it was a good point. One of the reasons some big market teams, like you just said, New York and California, pay more for players has always been said to be the state and local income taxes. You always hear so-and-so signed for less to go to Texas or to Florida because there's no income tax. Or I read player X will make an extra Y millions over the course of the contract by playing in a non-tax state versus playing in New York or California. With all that said, why isn't the CBA calculated 
on the team's total payroll minus state taxes because everyone pays federal taxes, but $233 million CBT threshold is worth a lot less in a high bracket than it would be in a no-tax state, thus creating an unfair advantage for teams so inclined to stretch their payroll that high. Also, one more point, why don't players have provisions in their contracts stating that if I get traded to a higher tax bracket state, my new team has to give me a raise so that my take-home pay is still the same? Richie, you're throwing a lot at me, as you always do. <laughs> Let's start with the CBT question. I'm not totally sure I have the answer, but let's go through it a little bit. First of all, the CBT, the luxury tax, for those who don't know, they calculate that payroll based on average annual salaries of players' contracts. So if it's a one-year deal, it's that salary. If it's a multi-year deal, it's the average. Now, state taxes can be somewhat baked in. As you mentioned, a player might get more in New York or California because He's asking for more due to the state income tax. Okay, but even then, if you're talking about giving those teams a break because of that particular factor, I would expect that it would be perceived by every other team, the ones not in New York and California, as yet another advantage for the large market teams in those states that already operate with considerable advantages. Actually, I should call them high-revenue teams in those states because Oakland plays in a big market but doesn't act like a big market team because they say they are a low-revenue club. Their fans would dispute that, but I digress. So I don't expect anything like that ever to be adopted. The luxury tax formula is pretty straightforward, and it would seem to me if you introduced the state tax element, one, you'd have the objections from the lower revenue teams. And two, it would just be too much of a complicating factor. And I don't even know that it's necessary, honestly. Now, the other question you asked, Richie, is about contracts, individual contracts, and whether players get what's called tax equalization in those deals, tax equalization provisions. And what that would do is if you're on a Florida team or a Texas team with no state tax and you get traded to a New York team or a California team with a high state tax or some other team with a state income tax, then you would get the same amount of money. Your contract would be equalized and adjusted because of those taxes. Those clauses do exist. I guess the most well-known was Carlos Delgado when he signed a four-year $52 million deal with the Marlins in 2005. Because he was playing with a team in Florida, he got that clause inserted, the tax equalization clause, and that would benefit him if he was traded to a team with state income tax or in a state with state income tax. And I remember that same year, Troy Gloss was traded from the Diamondbacks to the Blue Jays, and he had a no-trade clause, okay? So with the no-trade clause, he said, okay, if I'm going to Canada... I'm going to want tax equalization, and he got it. That was his requirement for waiving his no-trade clause. And players with no-trade clauses always have that kind of power, for lack of a better term. They have the ability to require contract adjustments of any kind in order to waive it. So that is how that would work. I'm not sure how prevalent those tax equalization provisions are today. I haven't heard of many recently, but I would imagine that they do exist. 
Okay, next question comes from Eric. He says, hey guys, big fan of the show. My question is, with rumors of an MLB expansion, what would be the process for a new franchise to fill out their roster and also their entire minor league system? Is there something in the CBA for this? I can't imagine it's similar to any other sport simply because of the amount of players in an entire organization. Also, if only two teams are added, would MLB need to rethink how they organize playoffs? I would think the divisions with six teams compared to five would be at a disadvantage. All right, Eric, you're throwing a few things at me and I'll get to them all. So with expansion, filling out rosters, there are a couple of ways that teams will do that if those teams are added. There's an expansion draft, first of all. In both 92 and 98, the last two expansions, both expansion teams selected 35 players. The draft was divided into three rounds, and there were players that were protected by the existing clubs, then additional protections as this thing went along. That's how you fill out the major league portion of it and maybe the upper levels of the minor leagues to some degree. You don't get all your players that way. Now, that was the most notable part, right? Because those are the most prominent players moving around. Players with no trade clauses cannot be drafted. There are other details involving an expansion draft as well. Now, in the cases of the Diamondbacks and Rays, and these were the last two expansion teams added, they were awarded their franchises in March of 1995. But they didn't begin play until 98. So in addition to the expansion draft, those teams had two years to draft amateurs, 96 and 97, and sign international players. That's how they filled out their minor league rosters. And I imagine, in fact, I'm relatively certain, that if baseball expands again, and when baseball expands again is probably the better way to put it, that we'll see the same kind of lag. Team named, two teams named, and then perhaps a three-year delay as the sport waits for the stadiums to be constructed and the organizations to be filled as well. As to what will happen to the league once there are 32 teams, this has been written about quite a bit, most prominently by Jason Stark of The Athletic, and it looks like it would be fairly simple. It would be eight divisions of four teams, very evenly spread out, two 16-team leagues, geographic realignment, and... Perhaps once and for all, the elimination of the American League and National League. You just have this one big 32-team league. There'll be a lot of interleague play. And the step that baseball is taking this year, where every team is playing every other, seems to me to be a step in that direction anyway. So it would be kind of cool, in my opinion, to see this happen, not just because the sport could benefit in many ways from the additions of two teams and two great cities, wherever they decide to go, but also just what it would do to the schedule, to realignment, to the playoff structure. These are all intriguing things to Major League Baseball. And one day, one day in the future, after the interminable Oakland and Tampa Bay stadium situations are resolved, we are actually going to see expansion happen. And almost certainly those new teams will, not too far into their tenures, get an all-star game. Which brings us to our next question from Kevin, who says, 
I have a question about the All-Star Game host city selection. For a league that wants to promote the game more internationally, is there a reason why Toronto has not hosted an All-Star Game since 1991? What does the selection process look like? Team performance? Facilities? The only other two current Major League cities with longer hosting droughts are, you just mentioned them, Ken, Tampa Bay and Oakland. I may be biased, but I think it's fair to say Toronto is on the polar opposite end of most scales compared to those two teams. Do you see this changing in the near future? I do see this changing, and you kind of hit on this with the cities you mentioned. Tampa Bay and Oakland, why aren't they getting all-star games? Because their stadiums are, let's just say, not ideal. Toronto has been somewhat in the same situation. Now, Rogers Center is beautiful. There's no doubt about that. But it's somewhat dated and actually is undergoing an extensive renovation that should be completed, I believe, sometime in 2025. So, at the All-Star Game last year, the one in L.A., Shai Davidi of Rogers Sportsnet, great reporter, reported that the Blue Jays are talking about bidding for the 2027 game after these renovations are completed, after the stadium is in a better position to host the game. Now, you probably could argue that Rogers Center could host the game regardless. Right now, it could have for the last 10, 15 years. I wouldn't dispute that necessarily, although I don't know exactly what the league requires. But certainly, after the renovations take place, it will be in an even better position. So I expect that If it's not 2027, the Jays will get the game eventually. And then perhaps all eyes will turn back to Camden Yards, which has not hosted the game since 1993. And in part, I will speculate that that is due to this ridiculous Masson dispute, baseball's version of the Hundred Years' War between the Orioles and Nationals that has yet to be resolved. And yes, I believe MLB might be peeved at the Orioles for that. The stadium is still beautiful. They're doing some things to it as well. And maybe, I don't know, for the 30-year anniversary. Actually, no, that's past. Maybe for the 40-year anniversary of Camden Yards, they'll get the All-Star game back. Wow, the 30-year has passed. That's crazy. Uh, All right, Fletcher has the next question. It's about the World Baseball Classic. Actually, a few questions. First up, I think I know why this is the case, but why doesn't the WBC use a championship series, three games, instead of one and done title game? Will we ever see a WBC championship outside of the United States? Japan, the obvious choice. And are there plans for a 2027 WBC with the Olympics returning at least for one run in London? Fletcher, the one-game championship, in my opinion, and I'm interested to hear what your thoughts are, Tim, as well, is simply a matter of wanting to get this thing over with. And it already takes up a good portion of spring training. Teams freak out about their players being away, the potential for them getting injured, all of that. That's part of it. Also, the drama of a one-game knockout is appealing. We've seen that from baseball. They like the idea. The television networks this year, it's Fox, like the idea. And it's just a more dramatic conclusion, for lack of a better term. Tim, what do you think about that? Totally agree. I I don't think it should be three games. I think the other thing is health of players, obviously, which is always stressful around this time of year with the pitching. Um, But I think one and done, you basically set up game seven and go to it. Everybody's involved as opposed to a a two-game sweep wouldn't be very exciting. Right. Now, as for the other two questions, outside the U.S., 
staging the championship round there. I don't see that happening. And I don't see it happening, not because it wouldn't be great to see it in Japan or Mexico City or a number of other places, but this is an event that is run by Major League Baseball and the Players Union, collectively, both of them. And it's an event to promote the sport internationally, of course, but also in our country and spark fan interest. So I don't see it moving for that reason. It just seems to me that this is going to be something that is played around the world in the early rounds, but eventually ends up back here. So that is the way I see that. What was the third question? I can't uh, remember. Now. Will there be another one? Oh, 2027. Yeah. Yes. Well, because we have not yet seen the collective bargaining agreement and exactly what it states, it's still being drafted, believe it or not. I don't know the exact schedule for the WBC, but I am quite certain that they want to stage it in the future. And my guess is 2027, four years from now, would be the time. I don't know that they're going to do it in two-year increments or three-year increments. I'm just not sure, honestly. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Guys tend to think looking sharp means starchy Oxfords and stiff chinos rather than effortless comfort, but it's possible to have it both ways. I'm all set for summer thanks to Mack Weldon. The Vesper polo shirt is so breathable you can wear it on the golf course, but it looks classy enough to wear to a party. The Maverick Tech Chino short is ultra flexible, and the Pima Crew neck t-shirt is perfect for those casual weekends. There's no need to be uncomfortable in your clothing ever again. Some guys just want to look good without calling attention to themselves. Mack Weldon Apparel gives you understated good looks for understated confidence. Mack Weldon clothes are designed to fit your style and the demands of modern life. They look like regular clothes but feel like the latest in modern comfort. They're the go-to choice for guys who want to look great without even trying. Breathable underwear that keeps you cool, dry, and comfy all day. Crazy comfortable but elevated sweatpants. An upgraded classic polo with antimicrobial silver threads. An ultra soft antimicrobial tee for when you need to stay fresh longer. That's the Silver Crew Neck T-shirt. Get timeless looks with modern comfort from Mack Weldon. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your first order with promo code MLBSHOW. That's M-A-C-K-W-E-L-D-O-N.com. Promo code MLB show. All right. Next question is another international question from Tom. Uh, I believe he's Dutch. He says, I went to the first London series in 2019 and I thought it was an awesome and great success. But I started thinking that hosting games on mainland Europe would make more sense, especially with countries like the Netherlands and Italy having international success. It would also make traveling to the games for much of Europe a lot easier, especially now that the UK is not part of the European Union. Cities like Munich, Paris, Amsterdam seem like they have easier access than London. Do you know if there are plans for more games in Europe? Tom, there are plans for more games in Europe. This year is London again. Next year is London as well. And then 2025 is Paris. 
Now, I don't know if there are plans beyond 2025, but the goal of Major League Baseball, I would imagine, is to play in a number of the cities you mentioned. This is an international event designed to promote the sport in other countries. Why not go to as many countries as possible? London was the first. London will be the second and third. But Paris will be the fourth. And that will be quite a thing, I'm sure. In fact, the Yankees and Dodgers have already expressed their desire to be part of that game, that series. It would be two games, most likely. So yes, I do expect in the future we will see games on the European mainland as well as the games that we've seen in London and in England so far. Following what the NFL has done, starting in London this year, they were in Germany. I think next year they're in Germany as well. All right, last question comes from Isaac. He's a Marlins fan. He's disgruntled that the team was owned by one of the cheapest owners in the sport for 15 years, only for the team to be sold to another, maybe even cheaper owner, because he was part of an ownership group with Derek Cheater, who has since left the team. Did MLB really only select Bruce Sherman over wealthier options, such as Jorge Mas, because they wanted to get Jeter back into baseball. And now that Jeter is gone, will MLB pressure Sherman to spend more, or are we stuck with this cheap owner? First of all, Isaac, as it was reported at the time, Jorge Mas was outbid. Bruce Sherman's group bid $1.2 billion for the Marlins. Jorge Mas and his group, just over $1 billion. So... If that was indeed the case, and that's, again, the way the Miami Herald reported it, then it's pretty obvious why Bruce Sherman got the team. He bid more. Now, did MLB want Jeter? I'm sure MLB wanted Jeter. Yes. But if the finances were that different, then you can understand why the selection was made as it was. As for Bruce Sherman and MLB requiring him to spend more money, that's not going to happen. And as for Bruce Sherman selling the team, which the Los Angeles Times reported recently might be something he considers, he last week basically shot down that idea, said that he does not plan to sell in his lifetime. So the Marlins are going to be the Marlins and operate the way the Marlins have operated, what I believe will be for the foreseeable future. And yes, it's a problem. It's a problem for... The sport in general, when some teams do not spend as much as others. Now, we've gone through numerous times why the payroll disparities exist. The revenues in the sport are locally generated for the most part, as opposed to the NFL, where the national television contracts provide the vast majority of the revenue. It's a historical problem for baseball. It's not easily solved. Revenue sharing helps, but doesn't totally address it. So for Miami, for Tampa Bay, for Cleveland, for Oakland, for a number of franchises, that revenue disparity is a problem. It's going to remain a problem. And frankly, I'm not quite sure how to solve it other than what they've done. So I don't know what to tell a fan of any of those clubs, the Marlins in particular. The Marlins have done some interesting things this offseason. I don't know that it's going to change the equation much. They're in a division with three absolute powerhouses. The Mets, the Braves, the Phillies. The Marlins could have had a great offseason, and maybe they did. Maybe it'll turn out that way, and they'll still likely will finish fourth. So I'm sorry, Isaac, I can't offer you more words of encouragement, but 
That essentially is where they are. All right, and that brings us to the end of this episode of The Mailbag. If you want to get involved down the road, uh, call us, 646-543-7072, and leave a voicemail or email Show at gmail.com. Two more episodes coming up on The Athletic Baseball Show this week. The Roundtable will be publishing on Tuesday afternoon with Grant, Andy, and Mark. And then on Wednesday, we're coming a little bit earlier with Derek Van Riper and Keith Law. Keith's Top 100 Prospects was released this morning, and they will be getting into that. So definitely check out that episode on Wednesday of DVR and Law. If you want to join The Athletic right now, it's $1.99 a month for a year if you go to theathletic.com slash baseball show and also subscribe to our new YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash at symbol the athletic baseball show. Thanks everybody. Talk to you soon.